when we connect our own energy and life force, we're actually connecting to the big energy out there in the world. And this is the venue, the entry point into connecting with all the rest of life around us. Welcome to Rise Leaders Radio. I'm your host, Leanne Mallory. As a leadership coach, I work inside organizations and I focus on helping leaders achieve their whole person potential and meaningfully contribute to their organization's mission. With this podcast, I share leadership best practices, developmental approaches, and stories of exemplary leaders. Hello and welcome. I am so happy to share this delightful conversation with my longtime friend, Mark Mooney. In reconnecting with Mark, I also reconnected to my training in somatics, which is a body-centered approach to learning and transformation. I believe that learning through our body is essential for reaching our potential. During our conversation, Mark and I talk about somatics, ecosomatics, the role that nature plays in our engagement with the rest of life and historical shaping. This term historical shaping is likely unfamiliar to you, yet understanding our historical shaping is vitally important to understanding how we navigate and respond to the challenges and opportunities that we experience in life. At the end of our conversation, Mark gives us a practice for connecting with nature even when we're surrounded by bricks, mortar, and concrete. Mark has one of the most varied backgrounds of any guest I've had on the show. I know him as a highly skilled teacher in the domain of embodied leadership and have had the pleasure of learning and teaching with him. Mark trained under Richard Strozzi Heckler, who's the founder of Strozzi Institute. Strozzi Institute is a thought leader in integrating body-centered practices into leadership development, combining it with philosophy, psychology, mindfulness, and the martial art of Aikido. Mark was a senior teacher at SI for 18 years. Mark describes three additional domains of mastery in his life. The second is Aikido, where he does hold a second degree black belt, woodworking, and marriage. Mark and his amazing wife, Madeline, have been married for 43 years. So he has a few things to teach us all about maintaining a full and rich and meaningful marriage. When I reflect on my times with Mark at Strozzi Institute, his ability to hold space to create a safe container for any group is what stands out the most for me. Mark could create and maintain that container for days, bringing about transformative shifts for individuals and for the group. Mark, I'm so happy to have you joining me in this episode today. Thank you, Leanne. It's great to be here with you. It's uh, great to be here with you as well. I just want to start off with the term ecosomatics. That's what we're talking about today. We'll wander around some, but I'm familiar with the term somatics, and I could probably make up my own definition for ecosomatics, but I'd rather you do it. So why don't we just start there? Sounds good. 
ecosomatic is a blend of deep ecology and somatics. You know, as you mentioned, uh, my somatic training basically came through Richard Strozzi Heckler. Mm-hmm. So that's the ground of my somatic work. And early on, he mentioned you know, when we connect our own energy and life force, we're actually connecting to the big energy out there in the world, which really got my attention, has been in my thinking forever about ecological and environmental concerns. I actually was at the first, revealing my age here, the first <laughs> Earth Day in 1970 at the college campus. So I, I look at this connection to our own life force and I go, well, there's life force all around us everywhere. And this is the venue, the entry point into connecting with all the rest of life around us. So looking at deep ecology, I can't think of a better way to explain what a environmental consciousness or conscience would look like. And the points of deep ecology that that George Sessions and Arne Ness uh, developed back in the 80s really speaks to is like, oh, this. So in the conversation of transforming ourselves as human beings, like what is personal transformation? So this, I've been in this conversation for decades. Yeah, so here we go. One thing, one thing connects to the other, yeah. Connects to the other. And with the advent of the necessity to face climate change, that it occurred to me that one of the few ways this is going to happen is if we become connected to nature in a whole different way. And so personal development for me, really complete personal development and embodied or self-actuated self would also include a deep connection to all the rest of life on the planet, respect for and connection to the rest of life. So if we're transforming ourselves, it's one thing to go, I'm going to become emotionally stable. You know, I'm going to be able to think well. You know, I'm going to be able to meet my goals. But then there's the rest of life. <laughs> right. Well, and then there's the nervous system and the emotions and the body and everything that has to fulfill on those good ideas. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in this sense of, of aliveness and life force in us, it is the vehicle of, through which we actually connect with each other. And so it's something we're doing all the time is we don't necessarily put it in the same context. We put it in a thinking context mm-hmm. rather than an emotional or sensate context. We're like, oh, I can feel you over there. Okay, I just want to go ahead and jump into this because the way that we, or one way that we got into this conversation is I believe you have an assertion that even though we are physically distanced, you and I are on a Zoom call right now, but it could be any video call. It could be Teams or whatever that people are using that we can still feel connected even this way. Is that true that you, you believe that? It is my experience that I believe this. Mm-hmm. I couldn't necessarily go on a place and look at science and go, yeah, this proves it right here. Look at this study. Um, <laughs> because science doesn't necessarily think that way or feel into things that way. Um, Though I think it would be a reasonable study to do, like how do we connect? Um, Connection is, uh, transcends time and space. Energy transcends time and space. You know, if you look at quantum physics, how energy and matter is existing all at once, it doesn't pay much attention to time and distance. Mm -hmm. You know, so this is the same thing that's working for us. And that's the scientific ground for you. Like, yes, we can connect. My earliest experience, I was 
coaching some people in a course back east on, on the east coast, out on the west coast. And um, we had coaching sessions in between. I got I was coaching this one fellow. I'd never met him. In fact, I hadn't even seen him because we didn't have videos back then. So, and he says, I can't feel myself. I was like, well, okay, let's take a little journey. So I started to direct his attention a little bit lower, feel your throat, feel your vocal cords, and started to bring his attention deeper and deeper into his body. And I'm on the phone with him. I had my eyes closed, and I'm going, well, I'm going in there with him. So this is exactly the thing we're talking about. So I'm going in there with him. And so I'm following his trajectory as he's going, and then I go, go here in your body, go here in your body. And there was a point where he got to his belly. And the moment that I saw this bright orange flash, he said, I feel myself. So that was my first like, aha about, oh, yes, we can do this. We can connect very deeply on an energetic, spiritual, emotional level with each other. And the screens don't really matter. Right. And, and in fact, you didn't even have a screen. And just for the record, I do most of my coaching work without video mm-hmm. because I like to listen to a person's voice. I can tell more where the breath is coming from. If I, uh, if I don't have the visual distractions, because I do get visually distracted. Mm-hmm. And Marcus, you were talking about, you were there with him as he was going through the different parts of his body. You know, and I remember Richard talking about the imagination being like a muscle mm-hmm. and our ability to imagine another person, even though they're not in front of us. And I think that that probably supports your assertion that we can be connected without being in the room with each other. And we use other senses, we use our imagination but we use our voice, our ears, those things as well. And so I guess I agree with you (laughs) about your assertion. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. You you know, it's an interesting thing that the senses immediately transfer information to the brain, and then we make, quote unquote, sense of it. And so when I'm looking at something, it's like, oh, that's a cow. I got a cow over there. Out my window. So. <laughs> yeah, right. You're in ranch land, which, by the way, I have to say does make it easier to connect with nature. So I do want to cover on on our call today for people who don't have easy access to nature because not everybody does. So I, I do want to talk about that. But you, you just gave us the example. I see a cow and I say, oh, that's a cow. Yeah. Well, I'm not really seeing the cow. I'm seeing how my brain makes sense of the visual cues that land in the senses of my eyesight. So one of the things, again, that we're missing is we don't live in our senses. We live referring to our senses. And this is another way we separate ourselves out from aliveness and connection with other things that are around us that we see, that we hear, that we smell, that we can taste, that we get the texture of. So it's, it's another way that we isolate ourselves by going, thinking is all there is. Mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. You know, I think how much in school that thinking was the only thing that was important. For most of us, all the way through kindergarten to PhD, you know, unless you have some kind of different kind of learning or training that you go through, that really what's important is how well you can think. 
And I'm, I'm thinking now about your background, your deep background in woodworking as well. And that is such a sensorial um, craft. Yes. Feeling the wood, carving the wood. And I know that you did more high-end carpentry. I don't know if you do wood carving as well, but I've seen your carpentry work and there's a whole, how is this feeling? You know, what is, what is the touch? And my understanding of the senses is that they bring us present. Yes. Our, our thinking can be in the past or in the future, but our senses are only now. Although they will remind us of things, but the smell, the sound is, is right here. So if we pay attention to that, it's a way of bringing ourselves present as well. I, I agree. I totally agree. And th- this is why it becomes useful to like learn how to, and again, this is an attention movement, like where I place my attention. Do I place it in my, like how I think about what I see and feel and touch? Or do I actually put myself into the sensation of those things? Hmm. And most people will go to the referencing. It's I mean, what we're taught. Nobody goes, it's like, oh, you should be in your senses. Nobody does that for, <laughs> a, you know, like senses 101 or something. We just don't get that very often. You go to specialized schools and specialized trainings. You can develop these things. So, yeah, getting involved with their senses is one of the ways that we reconnect to the rest of life is because we're experiencing life very directly in, in that way. And it seems like those things can also anchor us. So if this is a podcast, I do these uh, conversations and I'm having this conversation with you in the service of, you know, I work primarily in business and in different types of organizations, but we spend a lot of time here in our work, whatever that work is. And, you know, how can we make it more fulfilling? How can we be more satisfied there? How can we bring our best selves to all of those things that we say are important to us? And it feels like I think of myself and my mind gets way ahead of me. Like I get way ahead of my skis and sensing the senses, the breath or whatever will bring me back. So just from a very practical perspective, it seems like a good thing to hone these skills and to get really good at just noticing what's around us and being present to that. Your work and my work, we know that there's a lot of time wasted on thinking, especially on, oh gosh, why did I do that? Did I do that? Am I going to do that again? I can't believe, you know, and we just go on and on and on in our thinking. You know, I do it too. I get upset by something and it's kind of like, I can't get my mind off of it. We all do that. It's pretty natural. There, but there's relief from all, all that noise, you know, in the Hindu tradition, they call it the monkey mind, just like constantly, you know, <laughs> rambling thought. Study done suggests 80% of our random thinking is comparing ourselves to others. How much? About 80% random thinking. So that seems fairly useless to me. So where else can I spend my time? Well, we might as well be in the experience of life as opposed to thinking of life. Joseph Campbell suggested that, that we're, not, we're not looking for the secret or the meaning to life. He suggests that we're looking for the experience of life. 
which means experiencing all of our emotions, fully being willing to experience our emotions, fully being aware in the moment of things that are going on around me. The experience of life just gets better. You know, it's just more fun, I think. That's a perfect viewpoint. So let's go back to this gentleman that you were working with on the East Coast who couldn't feel himself. And what happens when we can't feel ourselves? What are we losing out on there? That is such a huge question with so many different ramifications. Yeah. Like one of, one of the most obvious is, is our own health. We'll disconnect from what can be healthy for us and we'll just override all everything our system is saying, don't eat that or don't eat so much of that. Or it's like, oh, this food actually doesn't work with my system. Mm-hmm. So I think in the health domain, where, where we don't pay attention to our bodies is probably one of the more serious effects. Otherwise, I keep coming back to, and I get this question, our overall experience of life. And the more we limit ourselves of the possibility we are in our humanness, then we're minimizing our own experience of life, which is really only going to last so long, if this is our only time around. <laughs> right, well, that's a whole other conversation. A whole other conversation. <laughs> But it's only going to last so long, and we, we, we focus on so much stuff that it's kind of like, why, why are we spending so much time on all this? Mm-hmm. So part of this into the transformation game, personal transformation game, is we have to get on the, on the top side of our historical shaping. In other words, we have to be able to see and know how we were shaped and how we were put together so that we can understand that this whole part of how where we spend time you know in our own heads is really useless and has no value talk a little bit about shaping mark um historical shaping because i think that that's such a a fascinating it's not just a concept it's a reality like we're all shaped literally shaped by our history this is one of the the more beautiful things that richard took from you know, standing on the soldiers, a lot of other mind-body practitioners. And he developed this piece of the shape in the body and what was in balance and out of balance. It actually means something to our personality and the self we are. So the distinction between being on the phone or being on video, I need to see your body. All the little incl- inclinations, all the somatic practices we do we, that we are just totally not aware of, mm-hmm. they really are reflecting who we are. We're looking to get our basic needs met, connection, affection, belonging, safety, and dignity. So everything we do as a young child is based on getting those needs met. We will do fundamentally anything we need to do, consider how twisted some people's upbringings are mm-hmm. to the point where... I start to act out and make a lot of mistakes just so I can get some attention, though that attention is yelling or even physical contact and those kinds of things. But the yearning for that attention and connection and affection has me organized in ways that is like not really might be good for me. That's not everybody, but it's like one yeah, example. Th- that's an example. Yeah. And I think of like a shaping that would be that way. And that's somebody uh, kind of, if I can imagine someone that has been shaped that way, kind of always um, looking for a way to be noticed. Or completely the opposite. Ah, okay. Yeah, of like, please pay no attention to me whatsoever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is a good point. If I'm at the end of the spectrum where 
I want to be noticed, but I'm going to get too wide, too big. I'm probably going to lack boundaries. I'm going to take up too much space. My voice will be too loud. I'll interrupt people. I'll talk over people, different things like that. Now, as a shape, what you might see is the chin's up a little and I'm looking down my nose at you, or my chest is pushed out as kind of a defense against the world. Because, you know, if I act out like this to get the connection and affection, some not so good stuff could be coming at me. So I need to brace for that. Mm-hmm. And so that will show up like the chest gets pushed out. And again, in kind of an arrogant or entitlement shape where my chin's up, the head's off to the side just a little bit, and I'm looking down my nose at you. I mean, this could be subtle, but I'm still doing it. I am just now remembering that there was a time where I was working with someone and I just put my finger on their chin and I brought their head down and I brought their chin down just a little bit. And then I asked them to repeat what they had just said. And he said, that is the most significant thing you have ever taught me. Yes. Just like that, that changed his whole mood was just bringing that chin down where his eyes, he was seeing different things. He, his breath was different. It changed everything, just bringing, bringing his chin down. We had a student, a doctor, uh, back east on a course in Boston. And I imagine he was one of those doctors who looked at the charts, not so much at the patient. Mm-hmm. And he was walking around the room, we teach people how to walk. You know? Right. right. <laughs> walking around the room, his eyes was all, were always down. So day three on this course, he ended up spending most of the evening walking around Boston with his eyes up. And he said, it's the first time I've ever seen the world. Huh. Now there's a reshaping. Yeah. And then from a physical perspective, I think what happens there is that the muscles in the neck get longer, in the back of the neck get longer, the muscles in the front of the neck get shorter, so that it even it feels uncomfortable to hold your head up. Yes, it can. That's an interesting part about shaping. You look at people's shape, resign shape is one of the things that people can see the most. You know, it's kind of collapsed, looks like there's a weight around the neck. Mm-hmm. A resigned shape. Uh-huh. Resigned shape. And it's even part of the defense of let's make myself smaller. I'll bring my energy in, I'll condense my musculature, I'll actually bring my head down. Now I'm going to be smaller. I actually gained half an inch when I started to stand up straight in this work. I got a half inch taller. So all my short friends went, how'd you do that? (laughs) (laughs) So did you have more of a resigned shape when you started this? And so, Mark, is that at the other end of that continuum where we have one end of the continuum that you were saying was, you know, really wide, taking up too much space, loud voice, maybe talks too much. At the other end, we might see a resigned shape, which would be narrower, eyes down, chest collapsed instead of out. Is that resignation? Feet would be closer together because mm-hmm. I want to take up less space. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different indications. Usually the breath is up around the chest. Being smaller, I'm not going to make much noise. I'm going to be like way back here. Inability to find voice can often show up here too because speaking out can be dangerous from my history, mm-hmm. shaping. So, you know, sitting around me- meetings and it's kind of like this person knows a bunch. Why don't they ever speak up? It's just shaping. Like how many people you work with is like, camp on my voice in meetings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's chronic. 
is chronic for a lot of people. And the other end of the spectrum, who gets all the notice and consideration and attention? The loud voice that says the same thing over and over again <laughs> and just as louder and noisier. So they will want to get more attention. Yeah, I have a, a question that I want to ask you right now too around. So if someone were to were having some kind of symptoms and so they were they go to see a psychologist, which by the way, I highly recommend. I think everybody ought to be in therapy at some point in their life and maybe multiple times. But I also think that just paying attention to our shape, we don't have to necessarily know why we're shaped a certain way, but just take on a new shape and see what happens. Am I missing the point there? No, no. I I think most of the time this can begin a transformation. Mm -hmm. It's it's where I start with everybody. Centering is the first thing. Centering and developing a centered presence, the ability to have a centered presence, which is taking the shape of the body in more of an ideal human form. It's like put the chart on the wall at your chiropractor office <laughs> where your massage therapist looks like, and it's like, and you look at it and go, nobody stands like that. But it's like, but that's their design. But try it. Yeah. Yeah. But the question then becomes back to the origin of this why aren't we looking like that? The self and the body are indistinguishable. The body has to take the shape of the self. It can do no other. So as adults, we can look around in a group of human group of adults. Everybody's a different shape. Now, it's not about taller, short, wide, or narrow. It's really about how does the head sit on the shoulders? Where's the breath? What do people do with their arms and hands? You know, how the shoulders move forward, push back. A lot of heart hiding. Mm-hmm. They push back. It looks like shoulders are rolled forward, but most of the time it's the heart is recessed. So protecting the heart so many different ways. People walking, no hip movement. Yeah. So, Bunch of tight asses out there, huh? Exactly. <laughs> I wasn't going to use that phrase, Lee. Thank you. You're welcome to it if you'd like. <laughs> so shoulders and hips are supposed to rotate in opposite directions when we walk. Now, you look around and watch people. There's not that many people that actually walk like human beings are supposed to walk. When I went to Africa and visited some hunter-gatherers, there was none of the shaping things going on. They were just loose, relaxed human beings, and they moved across the landscape as if part of the landscape. No separation. It was was amazing to watch their shapes. Hmm. And then somebody asked them in another group, um, asked them, was like, well, what do you all do to work on yourselves? So they had to confer about that. You know, hunter-gatherers that work, live out in the woods, nomads. They had to confer about that. <laughs> their, their answer was, why would you do that? Why, why would you, why would you why work, would you on, work yourself? on yourself? Yeah. What's the need? Yeah. Boy, my mind is just going a lot of different places. I do want to talk about the connection with nature. Yes. And what do we do when we're in cities and we're surrounded by concrete and I also want to talk about, so we've, we've covered a lot of ground here around shaping, and I can just imagine, and I, this is such a good reminder for me too, that um, all of these things that we've just talked about, anybody can practice, you know, like practice making your shoulders wider, now bring them in, relax your eyes, now narrow them. All of these things that we've talked about here, people could experiment with. You know, and we can work on our shape. And as you said, it is transformative. 
And what happens when we get a group of people? So a, a team yeah. of people that are actually doing this work individually. And then what is what does it look like when we're practicing together different shapes? Before I get to that, I want to caveat back to anybody could do this and it would, it would help reshape them. Yes. Some people, it's, it's extremely difficult to make movement forward without regurgitating the past and stirring up mm. the past. Some okay. Have the understanding of like, why do I do all this? Mm-hmm. Knowing where it comes from. Sometimes that, that those connections are so deep and so gripping that you have to go back and stir things up. And this is often where therapy can be really, really useful. Yeah. To go back to the old Thank stuff. Thank you. Yeah. So it's, it, anybody can start it, but not everybody can manifest different things that way because of the nature of their shapings in our upbringing. Mm-hmm. So I have this whole thing about organizations and groups of people like teams. Um, they're analogous to bodies. So any, every organization was born at some point, goes through its original shaping, and then becomes, especially if it's unguided, the organization will take on its own set of cultural practices. In other words, it will develop a personality. Mm-hmm. Yes. It has a history, right? And some of the main players are the emphasis and the, the psychology of the history, but that will Im- get imbued, especially, again, without doing anything, it gets imbued into the organization. That's why is almost every organization I've gone to has this, almost the same breakdowns as we do as individuals. It's the part of, that I, of work that I do in organizations, mm-hmm. people development part, not so much strategy and processes. I don't do those things. So it's a direct reflection. So it's one way to look at organizations and teams. You have a group of people. Now, They've been together, however long they've been together, they've already started practicing being together in a certain way. If you don't set up the culture of the team in advance, the team will set itself up in its own culture. And guess who has the most influence? Back to the loudest voices and the biggest energy. When it's like, "Mm, that's probably not always the best way to organize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one way to look at, organizations and teams is that we are a set of practices, just like as individuals, we are what we practice, how we sit, how we listen, how we eat, all these things are practices. So how we work is also a practice. Undefined, the team will just form itself and have its own set of practices. And the the same basic things that almost every organization I've worked with showed up for me in all my research about virtual teams and teams it's exactly the same breakdowns. Hmm. Accountability, clarity, listening, paying attention, being part of, feeling left out, uh, the human capacity of connection. It's, it's the same things we work on as individuals. Interesting. So that's the per- perspective I take because I'm look- I always look at things on the broader picture of like, well, what's being practiced here? Because that's, that's defining the team or the organization is the set of practices they live in, which most likely does not align with the set of values that the team or company or even us as individuals will espouse that this is who we are. No, I, I disconnect I'm, between those two things. Yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, these days there's so many disruptions in teams. There can be whether you've got a a startup 
or there's lots of changes, lots of leadership changes. Uh, an organization's been through one merger and acquisition or several. There are these disruptions. And if there's not a strong culture there, I'm thinking of like free range children. About you know, right. which is which is a, yeah. yeah, which is a way to bring up kids. And some people do that. I think that if you're in a chaotic environment, free range isn't all that helpful. I agree. You know, but if you're in in a setting where where the children can can roam freely and climb trees and make mistakes and 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 learn kind of organically, that's one thing. But if you're in a highly chaotic environment, which is what many of us, maybe most of us are working in now, free range is really dangerous and people are going to be bumping around and grasping and all of those survival mechanisms are going to kick in Mm -hmm. and you'll have a really prickly feeling team or organization because you haven't set that direction. This what we're talking about now is is my orientation to develop a ecosomatic organization. So this is exactly the kind of thing you, you, you have to look at. And I've done a few organizations, small companies working with this. And the first thing always is like, well, what are the values? And sometimes it's a few months just to get the values down. Right. An example, one of the companies spent time with the partners developing the values and they did great really developed it, brought it back to their people, discussed it, came back. We talked about some more. And so there's a lot of back and forth. So they got the company involved with like, how do we want to practice these values? So I went and worked with them on basically this. We were basically setting up a standard culture for the organization. And they had a, little, you know, a lot of office work, a little bit of manufacturing. It's a coffee company. And so about a dozen people working there or something like that. So it was a great experimental because not so many people. Right, yeah. And the smaller company is always more fun because they can make changes fast. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. um, so everything worked great in setting up practice until we got to the environmental part. I just found this absolutely fascinating. Then there was all kinds of little pushback here and there and this kind of, you know, it's kind of like, and I was going like, what's going on here? It's easy in terms of like, how do we, care for each other. It was easy in terms of, you know, we always look for the higher good, you know, standard values that a lot of people have. Now, this company, they buy only from indigenous coffee growers. They run their company on solar. You know, everything, all their bags for their coffee from recycled materials. So, you know, we could look on the outside and go, these guys are doing great. You know, they got all the quote-unquote pieces in place. No, it sounds great to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then started paying attention. Well, how are they working together? And what is it? What does ecosomatics mean and how people actually work together? So it's, it's not just acknowledging that you have a point of view, but it's acknowledging you as an energetic life force. So Part of what we did there was like, okay, let's start connecting to each other on a deeper level, energy to energy, and moved them through some practices and processes so they could do that better. Mm -hmm. Got a very pragmatic end of that with the speech acts and speech act theory, working requests and promises. So there's, there's the standard practices of working together, but at a company, just take the structure of speech acts and didn't bring the self-conversation into mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. limited success. 
very yeah. limited success. So it's a good structure no matter what. But the real question is, who's doing it? So take that further in, how do you make decisions for the company? Now, if you're environmentally based, how do you make decisions for the company? Well, is it good for the land? Is it good for the rivers? Or this kind of thing, which they weren't really all that keen on. It came down to as many companies will, and when you have to, is like bottom line was first. Mm -hmm. And people were present in there and the environment was definitely, they're paying attention about how they're, they're structured. But then it was like, well, when you have very rational decisions to make, do you just keep it rational? Because every time we just do the pros and cons, we're back into a totally thinking modality now. Mm -hmm. Instead of going, what does my gut say? What does my gut say? And what was our, uh, what is our commitment? Getting back to speech acts and what, why we, perhaps, why we, we have to look at with this coffee company, why did we form this company? Did we form it so that we could make money? And that's, I'm, I'm not arguing that that's a bad thing. Or, and did we start this company so that we could show it can be done differently and it's with a multi-stakeholder approach and we are really committed to that environmental stakeholder, no matter what. With this company, the commitment was clearly there. The ability to take actions to fulfill a commitment on a high level was, huh. they wanted to do it, but it was more like, well, how do we do this? So the example it's just moving towards is like, well, what if you got silent and went outside and, and sat in the forest and go, does this decision fit with life? Then how do you read an answer? So you're not just trying to figure things out in your head, that you actually, that the rest of life becomes a participant. This is where I go, the green company moniker for a lot of companies it's just a label. It's just a word they use. And there's a number of companies that are working really, really hard to actually embody this. Mm -hmm. And most people that I see when I really look at them, it's just that they don't know how. They don't go to this next place of really using the informational exchange we get from connecting into something much bigger than we are. And to take it into account on a level that is like, I can't just decide in my head because I'm closing out the rest of life in the decision-making now. So, Mark, I love what you're saying. And there's also, again, you know, for, for everybody, nature isn't close by like a forest. Yes. You know, so how would you work with an individual or a group that doesn't have access to that I don't even want to say in a perfect world, but what I would love to do is I would love to always be working with teams mm -hmm. in outdoor settings or with with the you know with the forest or with grass or something nearby so that we can move in and out of it. Just like you said, it's just not always feasible, particularly now with I don't want to say we're coming out of COVID, but lights at the end of the tunnel. Teams are starting to get back together again. But yeah, just how do you do that when you're restricted by this nature that does or doesn't surround us? I have several thoughts around this. Okay. Yeah. My spiritual teacher, where I go do ceremonies, et cetera, says it can't happen. The level of engagement and connection that we're talking about that I'm, I'm fostering and suggesting uh, can't happen in the middle of a city. 
I so far have refused to join that thought. Okay. So you are saying your spiritual teacher has a strong belief that it just can't happen in a building. Too much interference. Mm -hmm. If you think about, you go out in the woods for three days, you know, you're out in the wilderness for three days and everybody has done this after three days. It's like, this is different because you become imbued with the energy of the outdoors which is not going to exist as all there is is empty lots and sidewalks and buildings and cars running through all the time. And it's never quiet and there's always motion. And, you know, the only way I can get away is put myself in a little box somewhere mm-hmm. and get cut off of everything. And I can't see the stars. And I can't see the stars. Don't even know that the sky looks like this. I had a guy doing, doing ceremony here one time. And a, a guy came out from L.A. and was looking at the sky. I can fortunately st- see the Milky Way here in my house, which is like, this is co- way cool. Anyway, he looks up and he goes, I never realized there was this many stars out there. He'd never been out of L.A. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see that with folks here and particularly kids that grow up in our city mm-hmm. and they get taken to a retreat facility, like there's a Girl Scout camp not too far from me, and they've uh, built this amazing tower where the girls can go up with the telescope, and it's it's on top of a hill. We actually have hills in this part of Dallas, uh-huh. and, you know, there's a story of this young woman just standing up there, and she had never seen the sky like that before. She had only seen buildings or or neighborhoods, but had never seen the vastness, like a horizon. She had never seen a horizon before. When the middle of the country was getting populated by the white tribes, <laughs> many people couldn't stand it out on the plains because mm. it was open. Literally, their psychology couldn't handle it. They had to go back east to the cities. Huh. And, you know, forest. Yeah. Exposed. You know, because they just couldn't handle the vastness. Mm-hmm. You know, always thinking something's coming, something's going to happen. You know, the level of disconnect that people have in, inner, in cities and inner cities, it's been a few thousand years coming. So I've done a lot of research and like, how did we get this way? And so it's been about a 10,000 year journey, which is like, how long is that? Oh, yeah, about the start of civilization mm-hmm. is where disconnect started. And there's a lot of pieces to this. Another call, another time. Um, so we've gotten so far from ourselves that it does become impossible to do anything else inside of that kind of environment because there's no possibility of learning how to do anything else, which you would get like the woman you talked about mm-hmm. in a different environment. They actually now something's open. They'll never forget. They know there's a big sky up there. They know there's stars up there now. And you can't get that out of your head. You know, and out of your system. Once you've seen that magnificence. Yeah. 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 So, so back to the question here. So your spiritual teacher says you got to get people out of the city in order to have this transformation. Mm-hmm. You're not completely sold, but so what? Yeah. So back to the connect to your senses. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter where you are. You will experience life differently if you connect to your senses. So there's that. Have more plants around. Mm-hmm. Have more pictures of landscapes and nature. E.O. Wilson, you're familiar with E.O. Wilson, scientist. He's a big ant guy. He's all okay. About, but he's much more than that. E.O. Wilson, any book he's written is excellent. 
Okay, very good. 1983, he wrote a book called Biophilia. I have heard of that, yes. And it's a Latin word meaning love of life. Basically, what he and and a few other people are suggesting is that the veil between us and the natural world is very, very thin. And he gave the story of this woman who is really like work was going downhill, wasn't doing that great, brought a plant in to her office, then brought another one, then brought a photograph of nature, and then some, a couple of paintings of nature. So she didn't even, I don't even know she had a window, but she started to surround herself inside of this inner city environment with nature. And so her boss comes in a short time later and goes, your productivity has just gone up. What did you, and he starts looking around her office and go, a lot of plants in here. <laughs> so seeing this and noticing what happened to her, he redid the whole office. Plants and pictures. And if we look at a picture, the landscapes that will pique our interest the most and we'll go, oh, that's so beautiful, it's so beautiful, are landscapes that reveal delightful human possibilities of a place to live. Hmm. Safety. There's water. You can see there will be food. And we look at those landscapes and paintings and photographs, and we get drawn into that more than anything else. This is the biophilia effect. If we look at landscaping, most landscapings mimic savannas. Open space, clump of this. Open space, <laughs> Right. They're mimicking savannas because that's what we as human beings lived in for a few hundreds of thousands of years. And so we still have that, we're still drawn to those things. You know, it's, it's kind of like the same reason girls' aisles and, and Toys R Us are pink. Like nobody invented that, right? So, but there's the same thing. Nobody invented landscaping should look like savannas, but they do. And so if you look at like, mm, get curious about that, then it's kind of like, that's because that's who we are. So yeah, we're needing everything out. This is the good news part. That is the good news. That is the good news. And I'm glad that I asked this question and that that you're not completely of the mindset that we can't be transformed inside a city. And I think nature is really important. So let's kind of bring it full circle here. Let me me add one piece to that, because I think it's important to go in the the more challenged communities. They can't buy plants for themselves. Mm. You know, they can't may not even have a car to go to the park. So part of it is the social fabric and the breakdown of the social fabric that doesn't allow experiences for anybody could have and take that would allow for the connections to happen. So in a certain way, we're undercutting ourselves by having groups of people that have no access to any other life than inner city. As you said that, yeah, I felt... My breath left my body, actually, when you said that. It's really a sad proposition or a sad thing to think about that feels isolating. Like, not only am I separated from other people, but I'm separated from the things that can bring me life that I could get connected with to make me feel more alive. I don't, I, don't, I have no possibility. And you look at all the, the, the shanty towns and slums around the big cities around the world refugee camps and things like this is, is kind of like, it's even worse off in a lot of American cities, you know, which is what I was referring to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a global thing. The ideas are out there. Oh, let's have no cars in the inner city. 
and plant more trees and all that. So it's not like we don't know what to do. Yeah, it's the political will, et cetera, all the usual problems. <laughs> yeah. So I want to, as we're, you know, kind of wrapping things up here, a couple of things. I want to make sure, Mark, that you give us a URL, make folks aware of any way that they can connect with you or engage in any of your offers. That's one thing. Also, is there some practice or set of practices that you would leave us with? to help us with our own ecosomatic life? You know, I had to spend a little time on that question. Okay. <laughs> you sent me that question. I had to spend a little time on this because it's not easy. Here's the reason it's not easy. To really fully develop a, a somatic sensibility, there's a lot of pre-work that has to happen because of where we're starting from. Mm -hmm. My history is running me. I'm very head-oriented. I can't even feel sensation in my body. So I would say a good half of my clients are starting here. I would and agree. There's no sense of that energy even exists. And one scientist, I did the same thing in his body, the scientist in a course, and I said, and he goes, yeah, I can feel that. And I go, that's energy. He goes, hmm. Like, <laughs> he can't see it under the microscope. It doesn't exist. So that's in the way of, of really yeah. ecosomatic sensibility. That's in the way a lot. So one has to build a certain kind of foundational set of practices to produce the opening where people can actually feel, you know, it's the kind of body work that goes along with the reshaping. Mm -hmm. And when I have people do body work, I have them go out where I do some ceremony outside and I go stay out there for 10, 15 minutes, take your shoes off, put your feet on the ground. And it's kind of like, cause they're in a, this very disorganized reshaping space anyway, after the body work, it's like, yeah, connect to nature now. So it's a standard practice, and people have been so appreciative as they get to do that mm -hmm. after their session, a big opening happened. So I was thinking about what could people do now? I got to do a training back in Boston. I was invited. I asked the person, what do you want me to do? They went, anything you want. It was like, cool. <laughs> I can live with this. So one of the things we did, and this is something anybody can do anywhere. Yeah, start to cultivate your connection to your senses. So go for a walk. And obviously in nature is probably going to give you the easiest time to do this. And spend 10 minutes strictly in one sense. Don't start with eyesight because eyesight's too easy. We're using that all the time. So I could go, I'm going to walk slowly and just pay attention to what I hear. What's the furthest away thing I can hear? What's the closest thing? What's high pitched? What's low in bass? And just pay attention and listen to the quality of sound. And, and or or even what you hear, like things that I didn't, like I hear wind in the trees or I hear birds or I, I hear people singing people. that I didn't know that there was people singing or whatever that is. Part of the point is don't think about what you hear. Uh -huh. Just, just hear. hear it. Okay. And like in meditation things, if you pop out of that and get in your head or something, just bring your attention back to your hearing. So this is also an attention train. Yeah. Love it. And then you spend 10 minutes on aromatically, what <laughs> do I notice? And this is the place where most of us don't smell. And so I got a dairy, cows across the road. We have a steady westerly breeze, which oh. is great. <laughs> when we get the rare east breeze, it's like, oh, the dairy. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> 
in this county, what they call the Sonoma Aroma. <laughs> so I go just with my nose. And then if I'm walking in some tall grass or around some trees, tactile, I just feel the bark. I out for poison oak. But I feel the bark and I feel the grasses and I just feel the things that I pass. Maybe I stop and put my hand on the ground and just feel what does the ground feel like? What's the texture of the ground? Bring an apple or something with you. And at some point, just sit somewhere and eat the apple. Just taste the apple, nothing else. And then in eyesight, just pick a direction that is fairly dense is usually better, like trees and bushes and that kind of thing. See what the furthest away thing you can see. What's the closest thing? Can you see in between? You know, like can't see the forest for the trees. How do you see into the trees? So practicing eyesight and just like how much can I notice with my eyes? The hardest part about this is not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And just the experience of the senses. This is the first time I've done this with a group. I did it in Boston. I've done it since a bunch, but this is the first time with this group. And I brought them back and we sat down. Okay, okay, let's talk about this. It was silence. It was kind of like, first I went, okay, that didn't work. But then I started realizing as a few people started drifting, they got put in a space and they had an experience they didn't know how to talk about. Huh. So that's something we can do, anybody can do, anytime. And we, that is a practice with something we can get very, very good at. Mm -hmm. Every time you walk out, what's the smell like? I got to go to Africa, went to Tanzania, walked off the plane. It's like, this is different. <laughs> yeah, this is. A sweet, smoky smell. And, you know, so everything smells different everywhere you go. Yeah. And it, it strikes me that I can go on a 10-minute walk in between calls and just focus on one of those senses. I don't have to have, you know, 60 minutes where I'm uh, focusing on all of the senses. Mm -hmm. I guess 50 minutes because we have uh, five senses unless we get into that sixth one and then we're just imagining all the time. But the sixth one is us connecting online. Oh, okay. All right. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I like that. But it, I, like you said, it, it connects us to senses and it's also an attention training so that we, when we wander off, we can, we can come back. Bring ourselves back. So yeah. attention focus, yeah, you know, it opens a world connected to our senses on this level. It opens a world that we're just not usually paying any attention to. Mm -hmm. And the more we do that, the more we just might get interested in what that world is like out there. You know, there's been a couple of countries, Ecuador, and I can't remember the other one, that put it in their constitution that for any development, life, all life, trees, everything, rivers had to be taken into account. So there is something going on around mm -hmm. that. There, mm -hmm. there is a, like a right to life movement going on. It just yeah, In a different way, in a very... In really in a global way, but it gets, yeah. gets sidelined, it gets pushed aside. I mean, to think where we are right now and no actions really being taken around the world to change things is startling. I see on an individual level more, and again, whole, whole different conversation there, but I think there's a new generation coming online that's paying attention in a different way, and yes. that's one of the things... Uh, that I want to do everything that I can to support that next generation mm -hmm. that's more mindful of the, the eco part of the ecosomatics. 
So, so Mark, how do we, uh, how do you want to tell folks to get in touch with you? Do you have anything coming up? Kind of spill the beans. Yeah. You can get in touch with me with um, the right. My email address is Mooney, last name, M-O-O-N-E-Y, 23 at Comcast.net. Okay. Or at marketecosomatic.com. Okay. And I'll put all of this in the show notes as well. Yeah. So emailing me at Mooney at 20, Mooney. Mooney 23. Is it Moody 23? Moody 23. Okay. confused there for a moment. And visit my website, which is ecosomatic.com. No yep. ecosomatics. It's just one ecosomatic. Okay. <laughs> .com. And it has all the different, different offers. And some good articles and more in depth on what ecosomatics is and deep ecology and all of that. So there's some good articles on, on your website yeah. as well. A number of blogs, uh, some blogs on working with couples, blogs just on basic coaching blogs. And there's some on ecosomatic, yeah, some writings and yeah. Great. Mark, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's delightful to be in this space with you again. It's been a long time yeah. and I've missed you and it's great to be connected again. I agree, Leanne. You've always been a delight to hang out with. <laughs> All right, thank you. All right, you're welcome, thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Rise Leaders Radio on your preferred podcast platform. Your ratings, reviews, and shares are also really appreciated. You can also visit rise-leaders.com for all the resources we talked about today and to work with me if you're committed to making your unique and positive impact. Thank you for listening and remember, elevate your part of the world. Thank you.